ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We're live, and today is our very best show ever. If you want to join in the conversation, we invite you to participate with your comments and questions. Email us at sol at reachmd.com. You can also tweet us or talk to us on our Facebook page, or join in the old-fashioned way by calling 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. Or just open your window and yell really loud. We'll hear you. We are right outside. And today's guest is Dr. John P. Howe, President and CEO of Project HOPE, an international healthcare organization based in the U.S., Dr. Howe just returned from a recent trip to Haiti seven months after the earthquake, but the organization itself has been on site since January delivering critical care. Now, awesome organization. And now in the recovery phase of operations, they've launched a multi-year rehabilitation program for the over 10,000 patients needing long-term care, including many amputees. We're going to hear about those efforts coming up on the show. And later on, it's physician altruism put to the ultimate test reporting colleagues and who are incompetent or impaired because of mental health or substance abuse problems. Or who can't read the script. A recent survey published in JAMA, thank you very much, found that a third of doctors said they wouldn't turn in colleagues. So where do you side on this issue? More about that in our ReachMD forum. I've already turned you in. And we'll also look at recent obesity statistics in the CDC. How many states have an obesity prevalence under 15%. We'll answer that pop quiz for you later on, so grab a Twinkie and stick around. We've got a lot to talk about today on Second Opinion Live. First, as we do every week, let's talk about some recent headlines that have caught our attention. An interesting autism update was published recently in the journal Neuroscience, suggesting that autistic toddlers tend to have larger brains for their age, and that a correlation exists between degree of excess brain growth and severity of symptoms. But perhaps the bigger news here is that the authors observed excess brain growth starting very early on. All right. The researchers from the University of California, San Diego, used cross-sectional MRI scans to look at infants' brains. In infants who were later diagnosed with autism around three to four years of age, the authors reported finding evidence of brain overgrowth as early as one and a half years old. And by age two and a half, the brains of autistic children were 7% larger than, than the control groups. Now, what's interesting here is that they don't know exactly how brain overgrowth could be related to autism, or even if it actually is related. There's a correlation. They don't know if there's anything causal here. But the authors of the study say that their data could lead to earlier detection and earlier interventions like behavioral therapy. If they can catch it much earlier, say one and a half years old, and see that as a marker, maybe they can get on therapy much sooner. Absolutely. I think it's great research. And while we're on the subject, another study just came out suggesting that some traits of autism may be inherited and not just in autistic patients themselves. Researchers at the University of Illinois in Chicago say that close relatives of autistic children may display subtle differences in the way they move their eyes. Eye tests measured how quickly the participants tracked lights as they were turned off and on, as well as how they followed slow-moving objects. It turns out there were measurable differences in these tasks for relatives of autistic patients. And the authors speculated that these vital tasks might one day serve as markers for autism inheritance risk, leading to earlier and more specific behavioral treatments. Earlier treatment is the key there. Can you imagine just looking at a person's tracking ability and then finding out that they have an inherited trait marker for Autism, yeah, but you can't relative? you can't just look at somebody's eyes during a conversation. It has no, to no, be specific it's completely invisible right. to the naked eye. Well, now why don't we go to an entirely different kind of brain research? No, don't adjust your dial. You are listening to a digital drug, quote unquote, that we just downloaded off YouTube. 
Michael, I think, has already uh, checked out. Uh, it's completely awesome, man. tripped out. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're feeling at all trippy right now, which I highly doubt, that's because you just eye-dosed. Eye-dosing is an emerging trend kids are turning to in increasing numbers to alter their consciousness. So what is eye-dosing or digital drugs? Aside from very annoying atonal meditation music, will you turn it off, please? Thank you. I thought it was awesome. It is the practice of listening to music with binaural beats on headphones. This involves different frequencies played at different speeds in the left and right ears, which users claim produces effects of intoxication. Yeah, and there's websites pushing these drugs. I bought it for 99 cents off of Best uh, Amazon. Best dollar you ever spent. I, I know. <laughs> and they're legal and safe. But parents are worried, especially now that they've been warned by schools. It sounds like a story from a satirical newspaper, The Onion, but uh, it was first picked up by a local news syndicate after an Oklahoma school district sent home warning letters to parents. <laughs> and the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics essentially warned that digital drugs could be a gateway to harder illegal drugs. Sounds like Reefer Madness, that old movie. Reefer Madness, but with music. <laughs> it's the devil's music, as they say. And the Washington Post consulted Daniel Levitin, a neuroscientist at McGill University in Montreal, who confirmed zero scientific mechanism behind getting buzzed from this music. So why was I so high there? <laughs> because that's just you. Oh. And though he does note that binaural beats make for some aesthetically compelling minimalistic music. Uh, researchers at Oregon Health and Science University also conducted a study measuring brainwave activity of people listening to certain frequencies, finding nothing unique at all. However, they did find that Subjects who listen to binaural beats on a daily basis reported feeling less anxious, suggesting that perhaps this could be attributed to simply getting regular downtime for an hour a day. We should do that before the show. <laughs> we should. But, you know, I have to say, like, people are worried about it. They say, you know, in some pediatric circles, this is going to become more emerging. It's going to be a trend. It's going to be a gateway drug, as they say. I don't know if I agree What's with that. the placebo effect of any drug? What percentage? Uh, I'm going to guess 90. 40. 40%. <laughs> and I listen to the gates of Hades. In this Hades. case, you're going to say this 40%, man. 40%. I listened to is, it in my car, and it was like, this is weird. This is all placebo. But I don't really see it as a gateway. If this is going to be a viable alternative to kids thinking that they're getting high, I would take that over glue sniffing, over choking. I would take that over so many other things that they're out well, there why doing. Why can't they get high to music the way I do, like Beethoven? You know, I listened to Beethoven's Ninth, and well, I get... for I, starters, it was live when you were listening to it, so that's uh, <laughs> part of the problem. <laughs> they're you, they're no, slightly different Young whippersnapper. All right. Now, I think it's time to welcome our guest, Dr. John Howe, president and CEO of Project Hope. Project Hope is an international healthcare organization based in the U.S. After the earthquake in January, they went to Haiti with medicine and hands-on care, now Project Hope is launching a multi-year rehabilitation program to provide long-term care for thousands of victims trying to rebuild their lives. Dr. Howe has just returned from Haiti to see what Project Hope's volunteers have accomplished and continued to work on. Dr. Howe, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Great to be here. Welcome. I think you're in an awesome organization. Tell us about this project, this multi-year rehabilitation project. Is this like phase two now after you got there and did the best you could initially? Just back from Haiti. Literally uh, landed at Reagan Airport uh, about 12 hours ago. I can share a very fresh perspective. And uh, in, during the five days and visiting all corners of the country, uh, I was taken, very taken with the often described situation in Haiti, a country that is uh, in chronic crisis, TB, diabetes, and then periodically gets an acute crisis laid on like the uh, uh, earthquake. But in addition, we could witness the unseen crises. And 
the need for vaccines, uh, issue, uh, concerns for health uh, policy. So you're quite right. The rehabilitation program uh, designed to meet the needs of the 10,000 Haitians that were hurt and in need of rehabilitation, and specifically the 3,000 who had limbs amputated, that's the program that we're uh, uh, underway with as we speak. When you were there, can you describe the changes that you've seen in the conditions for healthcare workers from when you first got there till now? Because I think some of our listeners have been thinking like, well, I'd like to go, but I don't want to stay in a tent with no water. Are things better there for people who want to volunteer? Uh, without question, there's a range of settings uh, for uh, potential volunteers. Uh, within uh, the Hope family, uh, I visited the uh, uh, Adventist Hospital in, in uh, Deaconey, uh, just west of uh, Port-au-Prince, and visited our volunteers. And in that setting, there's a, um, uh, the hospital provides uh, uh, the housing. Uh, and then we drove up to Deschapelles, which is the center of Haiti, and visited our volunteers at the L'Hopital Albert Schweitzer. And again, there are, our volunteers are working in, uh, in midwifery and in rehab, uh, and the hospital providing the setting. And the same is true of the uh, Sacre-Cœur Hospital, the way to the north in Milo. Milo. And uh, some very exciting housing occurred just off of port au uh, we flew to port au and then uh, flew out to the ship, uh, the U.S. naval ship Iwo Jima, which they're on location uh, with uh, volunteers, uh, including HOPE volunteers, doctors and nurses uh, that are providing uh, care on the ship and on the shore and uh, by night residing on the ship. So for HOPE, uh, our, our settings for our volunteers are uh, institutional and hence have uh, the uh, conditions for support. Now, having said that, I think that it is true that there are some settings in the uh, IDP camps, the internet, internally displaced person camps, which uh, the, uh, the, uh, the overnight accommodations are much more rudimentary. Okay. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD XM 160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or call us by phone, 888-MD1-REACH. We're talking with Dr. John Howe, president and CEO of Project HOPE, who's just returned from a trip to Haiti and is telling us about continuing efforts there. Dr. Howe, it's so easy to forget about Haiti, and we keep talking about it on our show from time to time. What do you need now, and how can our listeners continue to get involved and make sure that their donations are going to the people? Because we've heard that some of the stuff is not getting to the people in the hospitals, that the politicians are holding it back. Well, without question, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, for many across our country, uh, Haiti is uh, uh, off the radar screen. And this is a country where well over the half, half of the population of the, uh, these United States donated in some way uh, to Haiti. And, and it's a tragedy that, uh, that the, the visibility is lessened. Why? Because, as we mentioned earlier, there's uh, three levels of crises going on in the country. So the residual from the trauma, then the the, uh, the quiet crisis of diabetes and TB, and then the unseen of the need for vaccination. So uh, as, a, as we're talking uh, now about uh, Haiti, it's so important, and, and you all can be so helpful in uh, ensuring that the uh, that our your listening audience knows that for sure uh, there are needs in Haiti. Now, as to the second uh, question, in terms of how can we be sure that the donations are, are are used and used wisely and well, well, it's 
it's important that the uh, uh, the, the the organizations that you're um, uh, contributing to have uh, a, a a base in Haiti, have got a reputation in Haiti, and uh, and, and and most of the uh, the organizations that are tip of the tongue here in the U.S. have that presence. So it should be pretty uh, easy and straightforward to uh, uh, find a venue for um, uh, donating. Now, Dr. Howe, it's been our impression that a number of relief organizations, they tend to fade out of the picture after the immediate disaster response. But Project Hope has made a habit of sticking around for the long hauls. So how is this organization able to sustain care for months, if not years, after the disaster, especially given that you've done this a few times over the course of the last 10 years? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, the various uh, non-governmental organizations have uh, niches, have a fort, and some are just absolutely excellent in the acute crisis, and others are uh, more helpful in the in the in the uh, uh, the quiet crisis or the unseen crisis. For Project Hope, uh, for Project Hope, uh, we're there early uh, in the acute phase, as we had uh, 80 volunteer doctors and nurses on the big hospital ship uh, Comfort uh, in Port-au-Prince. At the same time, as we move from from the acute uh, to the quiet crisis, uh, we're there to ensure that uh, our presence continues in other uh, areas that are uh, needed, perhaps with less drama, but but certainly with uh, 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 great effect, namely rehabilitation. And, and uh, again, you're right. If you look at the 52-year history of Project Hope, um, uh, if we were invited to participate uh, in the response to the Sichuan earthquake in, in China. But we've been in China since 1983. Uh, we're invited to help with uh, the earthquake in, in uh, Ismet, uh, in uh, Turkey in 99. And so uh, the, the, uh, we do indeed uh, arrive when the, the needs are acute. But what we want to do is to make sure that we uh, uh, embrace our mission, and that is that we do only those things which are sustainable. Can you come help us with our control room here? We could use Project Hope here for our show. No, just kidding. <laughs> if a doctor wanted to help and volunteer, how do they get in touch with you? It, it's uh, very, very, very easy. Uh, just go to our website, projecthope.org, and uh, so it just click on uh, the, uh, the section that says uh, volunteer. And to, to share that, put that in perspective and the fact that it works, it was two days after the tsunami that Admiral Vern Clark, the chief of naval operations, called me and said, Doctor, I have a novel idea. What's well, not novel is to send the big white ship, the Mercy, hospital ship to Banda Aceh. But what is novel is to have it be staffed by volunteer Americans led by you. And in the next two weeks, we had uh, 4,000 doctors and nurses apply. So uh, this uh, uh, mission with the Navy in uh, Port-au-Prince was our 20th mission. And at the heart of it is just what you're discussing. Uh, People will uh, come to the website, sign up, and be be credentialed. Uh, Going into the January 12th earthquake, there was um, uh, 5,000 5,000 doctors and nurses uh, signed up with Project Hope. And without an appeal for more uh, volunteers, uh, there were another 2,500. So today we have almost 8,000 doctors and nurses signed up with with, uh, Project Hope, uh, eager uh, to to help. 
And uh, I think this is a, a proof pudding of the fact that here in our country right now, there's a real appetite for volunteerism. Well, I'd like to appeal to our listeners. So what's the length of time that you have to volunteer for? And do you take care of all the details? Like if I wanted to volunteer, how long do I have to do it for? And do I have to fly someplace? And, and what are your most acute needs right. in terms of specialties? Uh, it really depends on uh, the, the distance uh, the, uh, the, the need is from the, here in the U.S. Uh, for example, the uh, Mercy, the big white hospital ship uh, with Project Hope volunteers on board, is, has uh, uh, just left Indonesia headed for Timor. Uh, and it is in a, um, uh, a four-month uh, mission uh, that began in Vietnam, uh, went on to Cambodia, then Indonesia, and now Timor. And for those rotations, we ask the volunteers to uh, uh, spend a month. Now, coming closer to home, uh, we have uh, here in Haiti, in, in the Latin America area, it's typically three weeks, although we have some for two weeks. And do you fly people in and pay for that? We never leave, have anybody stay home because they can't afford a ticket. What we, use, what we do is we ask uh, that if the individual physician can afford to pay for it, we, we would uh, ask that the, uh, the purchase the ticket. But if there is, uh, uh, that's not possible, uh, we'll provide that support. Uh, having said that, uh, one of the reasons that Hope has been so successful in attracting physicians and nurses uh, for the past five years is that we take care of all log logistics. So when a person leaves home, they land at, at a jumping-off spot, for example, uh, for Latin America in Miami. We're there to meet them. Or if the, rota if the volunteering is occurring in Cartagena, Colombia, our people are on the ground to greet the airplane, and then all the logistics onto the ship and all the logistics off the ship, it's all Project Hope. That's why we, we have nearly 8,000 people that have signed up to go. So would you say that your current staffing needs are essentially met and that it's more a matter of resources and equipment, or do no, you no, still no, have no. A, a big need for continuing no, no, volunteers? We, we, were, uh, we, were, we are just, uh, we have, uh, as, as our need for the acute crisis is lessened, no question about that. But as we move into the quiet phase with the rehab and with TB uh, and diabetes, we'll, we will need different types of, of uh, physicians and nurses and an increased number. So my, my, uh, my, my encouragement would be that as any listeners would like to learn more about HOPE, uh, go to that uh, Project HOPE website. And in fact, uh, I, we, I, had a, I got a little bit into your space <laughs> only on the Project HOPE website with a blog. So uh, it, you can go directly to, uh, on that, uh, to uh, the blog I had, which has uh, about a half dozen uh, photos taken on each day of the trip. So you can uh, follow the, what exactly is happening in those locations. And a good uh, example is that I visited uh, the, uh, the only public medical school in Haiti. And, uh, and I visited with two of the medical students. One's a uh, third year, one's a fourth year. As you know, it's a five-year program. And both of them were from Cap Haitian. They, they were attending a class, actually taking an exam, in one of the few buildings that uh, withstood the uh, earthquake on the campus. The campus was rubble. The next day, I went to the general hospital, which is a safety net hospital. Once was a 800-bed hospital, now 350, a shadow of its former self, literally and figuratively, and went across the street to the nursing school. And all I saw was UNICEF tents. 
Why? Because the nursing school collapsed just before, as you know, in late afternoon, the students were to uh, leave class, and 300 nurses uh, uh, died in that uh, rubble. So as I take you on this blog through a visit to that site, you can get one glimpse of Haiti. Then I'll take you in my blog with pictures on the on the great. Uh, ship the Iwo Jima off of Porto Pay. Uh, so I would welcome any and all of the physicians to go to the Hope website, look at the, uh, the blog about Haiti, and then sign up. And give us a web address again. It's uh, www.projecthope.org. Okay, we've got about a minute left. Is there anything that you want to say to our listeners? Any other ways we can help? Anything we can do to help you? Yes, we can help is coming back to your point about having Haiti continue to be tip of the tongue uh, to uh, our confreres across the U.S. I had dinner with Alex Larson, who's the Minister of Health, just uh, three nights ago, and I said, what wakes you up at night? He said, what wakes me up at night is the thought of a hurricane. Can you imagine 1.5 million people living in the IDP camps under tents and a hurricane coming in and lifting the, the roofs literally off their heads? The second one I worry about is an epidemic, he said, uh, and particularly uh, typhoid. So as, as we come to a close, I hope that I can just convey the sense of urgency that, uh, that life goes on in Haiti. It's not easy, and there are many, many ways in which uh, your audience can be very helpful. Well, thank you. And we will keep putting the message out show by show, we promise you. Our guest today has been Dr. John Howe, President and CEO of Project Hope. We've been hearing about Project Hope's continuing remarkable rehabilitation efforts in Haiti. We can all get involved, according to Dr. Howe. And thank you for being a guest on Second Opinion Live here on Reach MD. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, we have to remind our listeners Haiti is still a problem. There's lots of other problems in the world, but we can't forget about any of them. There are people there that need us. It's always humbling to speak to these thought leaders about these subjects who are out there on the front lines. All right, well, let's move now to the ReachMD Forum. Today we're talking about a recent survey that's stirred some controversy among doctors. The report hails from Massachusetts General and was published in JAMA, asking about 2,000 physicians whether they had an obligation to report colleagues who were incompetent or impaired because of a substance abuse problem or mental illness. And only 64% said that they completely agreed that they had that obligation. The other 36 either percent either somewhat agreed or disagreed that they were obligated to report impaired or incompetent colleagues. Yeah, and the most important reason for not reporting... Doctors thought someone else was handling the problem. It's always somebody else's always responsibility. Somebody else. And another significant amount of participants thought it wouldn't do any good to report their colleagues. And the rest, and I understand this, feared retribution. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be a whistleblower because then you'll lose referrals. All sorts of things. Yeah. Yep. Now, interestingly, psychiatrists and anesthesiologists were the most likely specialists to report impaired colleagues, while pediatricians were the least likely. It makes sense. Anesthesiologists are going to see surgeons in the operating room. They're right in the wake of all the procedures. Exactly. Now, take in mind that the survey population of interest here was actually far smaller than 2,000, since only 17% of responders personally knew of an impaired or incompetent colleague. I know you. True, true. And I know you. (laughs) In fact, I've already reported you. The authors did point out some complicated factors, some of which we did talk about among the respondents. The need for referrals and small practice. I mean, that's a very real confounder here. And that's something that is definitely going to bias one's ability and confidence to report. The fear of taking a hit in one's professional reputation, I think, is important. And for foreign medical grads and underrepresented minorities, heightened concern for being ostracized as those whistleblowers. That's something that was pointed out from the authors as well. 
they really felt that those particular populations were prone to be quieter because they didn't want to rock the boat. Right, and whistleblowing is dangerous because, you know, you can use it vindictively against people. It's got to really be a clear system that you don't just start using it against people. Yeah, it makes me wonder about this, someone else's problem. I think fear is actually the bigger motivating factor. Okay, well now, on to our pop quiz. Get your Twinkies, everyone. For the past decade, the Department of Health and Human Services plus over 400 national organizations and state health departments, collectively set the goal of lowering obesity prevalence in America to 15% by 2010. So how many states reached that goal? Let's consider some background first. Matt? Drum, drum roll. In 2000, no state had an obesity prevalence of 30% or more. And again, I'm saying obesity, not overweight. But by 2007, three Why are you states, pointing at me when you say that? I, I just have to. <laughs> it's just come so easy to me. By 2007, three states hit that dubious distinction of 30% obesity. Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee. So you're, you're lucky for now. Fried everything. They eat everything fried. And by 2009, nine states crossed that mark. Now we had Alabama, Arkansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and West Virginia. Definitely a, a pattern in terms of the belt here. Barbecue. Very much a barbecue uh, central area, Midwest, mainly the South. The CDC estimates that obesity now costs the medical system almost $1,500 more per patient each year compared to people of normal weight. And this translates into added medical costs of about $147 billion. Yeah. So with that backdrop, how many states do you think reached the goal of reducing obesity prevalence to 15%? Drum roll. The answer is, unsurprisingly, none. Good going, America. <laughs> We've done it. This is great. We're proud of this. Not a single state achieved obesity prevalence under 15%. We are so proud of our country. Colorado, however, is the lowest at 18.6%, while Mississippi comes in first, or last, depending on your point of view, at 34.4%. Now, the southern and midwestern states tend to have higher rates overall, but Colorado beats everybody. Don't know why. Maybe it's a higher altitude. You breathe more. Your BMI is higher. They have better parks in Colorado. <laughs> and they listen to iMuse or whatever it is. They have better parks. Well, actually, they've invested so much more money in their parks and recreation systems, and that is definitely going to make you think, well, maybe they put a higher cultural emphasis in that state and a higher altitude. I mean, I don't know if you can draw a connection between having a higher basal metabolic rate and, cons you know, you burning all more those calories. mountains to walk up. If it, if it, if, if it burns calories just to breathe. How <laughs> about San think. Francisco walking up those hills? San Francisco, that is a, a unique place with some of the tightest glutes and the biggest abdominals. It's a very strange body <laughs> type that you'll get out well, there. Well, listen, this is a serious problem. <laughs> It really is. <laughs> yeah, there's no question about that. And actually, there are a couple of things we have to keep in mind. The data was taken from 400,000 phone calls. Phone calls, mind you. And that's considered heavily underreporting for weights because people are, by and do large, going to be... Do they call people and say, hi, are you fat? Pretty uh -huh. much. And if they're going to ask you your weight, a fair proportion of people are going to under, under they're gonna lie they're going to underweigh they're going to say well i'm doing okay you know and they're going to say their weight which so the report actually took into account that it might be as much as you know seven percent underreported in terms of what people are actually well, saying well what bothers me is this is what's going to kill any health care savings in this country because when these people and, and you see them on the street when the obese americans move through the health care system with all of their issues it's going to bankrupt us so it's really time america to get this in gear 
Well, they say the last, you know, six weeks or so of a patient's life is the most expensive, but I think we might see a, a change in that trend if we were looking at just obesity management. And we know that the federal government wants to step up efforts to reduce and prevent obesity, touting new initiatives like First Lady Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign. But honestly, is that going to buck the trend? Yeah, well, let's move to Dunkin' Donuts, right? Look, yeah, let's, let's move, move to, to Dunkin' the, Donuts. Let's move to the convenience store and buy chips. Well, just look what the last 10 years did. I mean, we know there were efforts. We know that there were initiatives. We know that there's been a heightened awareness towards food labeling Wait, and I nutrition have an awareness. What if we took the extra stuff we ate, the calories, and sent them to Haiti? The people there need food. Wouldn't that solve the problem? Well, it definitely would. Well, I wouldn't stop at Haiti. I mean, we well, could definitely do a lot. But you know what? Do you really want to send them the kind of food that we're eating? No, let's send them the good food. You know, when I started practice 30 years ago, we never had these huge wheelchairs that I see in the hospital now. We see the double and triple wide wheelchairs. America, we are getting too obese, and we have to stop because it's time. And remember, we're talking obesity here and not overweight. These are BMIs of 30 and above. Maybe there's an eye drug you can like listen to that makes you eat less. Already tried it. Didn't quite work so well. <laughs> And with that, I think it is time to bring this show to a close. Michael, I can tell you, is already tuning out for playing that eye drug music selection. Yeah, <laughs> what is it called? The Gates, Gates of Hell? Of, Gates of Hades. Or is it Euphoria? The Gates of oh Hades. I listen to it in my car and I see devils. It in is front of placebo, me. people. Placebo. Exercise instead. America needs it. I guarantee you that. Exercise. Until next time, I am Dr. Matt Bernholtz. We hope to hear from you. And I'm Dr. Michael Morgan. Please, please keep Haiti on your mind. You need to. For more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com slash SOL. Give us a shout on Twitter or Facebook and check out our free medical radio app on your iPhone. We want to thank the people in the control room. Tony, our producers are in there too. Hi, guys. Thank you very much. Once again, we cannot emphasize enough. We are a Haiti-friendly show. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and thank you for joining us. Keep your radio dialed into Reach MDXM 160 because we're the best show on the air. Keep Haiti in your thoughts, everybody. 